me now to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. I am excited this morning to return to our study of Genesis. It has been almost two months now. Actually, it has been right at two months since we have been in the book of Genesis. And we are returning this morning to the middle section of Genesis that covers chapters 12 through 36. Since it has been so long since we have been in Genesis, I know you all remember exactly everything that we have covered so far. You remember all of the outlines and all of the cross-references and every point of application. But if you would just humor me, we'll do a quick review for the few of us who don't remember all of it. A quick review and overview of what we have covered so far. My approach to our study of the book of Genesis has not been intended to do it in one giant sermon series, but to break it up into three series according to the three major sections of the book of Genesis. And so some time ago, we, we, cut, we covered volume one, I called it. Volume one includes Genesis chapters one through 11. In those chapters, we saw God's perfect creation of all things, and we saw their perfect design in chapters one and two. But then we very quickly saw the rejection of God's design and the rejection of God's command and the fall of mankind into sin in chapter three. We learned then what we saw again this morning in our catechism question, that sin has to do not with making a mistake once in a while, but with rejecting God's designs and commands altogether and living independently. That is the heart of what is wrong with the world. That is the first and foundational problem from which everything else flows. And then we came to chapters 4 and 5, and we saw a contrast between the ungodly lineage of Cain and the godly lineage of Seth, one line growing deeper into sin and characterized by sexual perversion and violence, and the other line remaining devoted to the Lord, characterized by their worship of Him. But the trend was still downward. And we come to chapters 6 through 9, and we see the culmination of mankind's sinfulness, that mankind had become thoroughly corrupt. And so God completely wipes out the entire planet with a catastrophic, universal, worldwide flood. But by His grace, He saves one man, and his wife, and his three sons, and their three wives, eight people in all, whom God had sovereignly set apart and rescued from His judgment on the earth. Now at that point, we might have expected that to be the end of the story that they were going to live happily ever after from now on as they were intended to in chapters 1 and 2. After all, no doubt they had learned the lessons of the sinfulness of mankind. But wait, that's not where the story ends. Because we learn very quickly that those who came through the flood on the ark brought their sinful natures with them too. And that the problem with mankind is not in his outward circumstances, but in the sinfulness of his own heart, every one of us. And in a very short time, we find mankind thoroughly corrupt again. And so in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis, 
we see the all too familiar pattern of the degeneration of mankind culminating in Babel, or as we saw, Babylon, which is the constant reminder, the constant presence, the constant picture of mankind united against the ordinances, against the commands, and against the designs of God. And yet, all along, throughout these chapters of downward spiral, there is a thread of hope. All along. And we are meant to see little glimpses along the way that God has not forgotten His promise. The promise He made way back in chapter 3, in the midst of the sinfulness of mankind, that there would be a deliverer who will come, who will reverse the curse, and who will rescue men from their sin. That's the big picture of volume 1, chapters 1 through 11. That brings us to volume 2 of our study in Genesis, which covers chapters 12 through 36. Here, the focus zooms way in, no longer looking at the world at large, but focusing in on one man and his family and his descendants who have been set apart by God from the rest of the world, the people through whom God would fulfill his promise of salvation, through whom God would send the Messiah into the world and save his people from their sins. These chapters, chapters 12 through 36, present to us the divinely inspired record of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel. And I've said from the beginning, this is historical narrative, but it's not just a catalog of dry, dusty, irrelevant details of history. This is our spiritual heritage. These are our spiritual forefathers, tracing all the way back to the beginning. And by looking at their lives, we see almost in real time where we have come from. We learn a little something about why history has been the way it has been. We learn how we have come to this point today. We learn about how the world works. We learn crucial lessons about how to live. And most of all, we see the character of God put on display, not in terms of an encyclopedia and just a list of facts, but in the lives of people as it works out in ordinary life and in a way that encourages us and compels us to trust Him. And these historical records passed on to us in the form of stories and narratives in, in real history show us that, that all of this talk about God and all of this talk about faith and, and trust in Him is not vague theological jargon, but is true to life and has to do with real people in real places in the midst of real circumstances. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it till my dying breath. Doctrine is relevant. It means something. Because it's a foundation on which we build our lives. And so as we look at the life of Abram, what we need to see first and foremost, and above all, is who God is, and what He has done, and what He is doing 
to move all human history along toward the salvation of his people and toward the restoration of all things. The goal in studying the life of Abram or any other biblical character is not moralizing. What I mean by that is, oh, look at Abram. Look at what he did. Do what he did and be like Abram. And this, the goal of this story is not allegorizing either, as if these stories are just meant to be a picture of you. So the war that Abram faces is the struggle that you're facing today. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story and the goal of it all is to teach us who God is and what he thinks and what he is doing in the world. And from that, we learn how true faith and true believers are to respond to the events of their lives. Because we learn how to follow him. And we learn how to live in the light of the truth that has been revealed to us about God. And so in chapter 12, when we see Abram leave his homeland and his family in Ur of the Chaldeans to obey the Lord's command, we see a great display of faith. Not because his faith was strong, but because the object of his faith is immovable. His faith was in Yahweh. Abram didn't know where he was going when he left. He didn't know what to expect in the future, but it didn't matter. If Yahweh said it, that settles it. That's good enough. And he could obey, not because he knows all the answers, but because the God who called him is supremely trustworthy. In the same way, in chapter 13, when we see Abram selflessly defer the choice of land to his nephew Lot, we see another display of faith. Contrary to his lapse of faith previously in, in Egypt, Abram could freely give up the land that God had promised if necessary because he knew that somehow God would remain true to his promise. And again, he didn't need to know the future. All he needed to know was that God was in it, and that was enough. And then in chapter 14, in the same way, we see Abram display courageous, steadfast faith, not resting on earthly circumstances or achievements, but resting solely on the character and the call of God alone. And we'll review that in a few moments. And that brings us to our text for today, which is Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. But I need to warn you ahead of time, our study this morning is going to be a little bit different than normal. Because we've already covered chapter 14. We've already covered these verses. And if you have not already heard that message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message uh, from chapter 14. It's on our website. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you're looking for it, you'll find it on November 14th. But today I want us to go back and take a second look at this mysterious man that we meet in, chat, in verses 17 through 20, the man named Melchizedek. You probably can't tell just by looking at chapter 14 of Genesis what is so important about Melchizedek, but he is a highly significant figure in Scripture. And our study is going to be a little different this morning because we're not going to stay in Genesis 14. We're going to start here, but then we're going to note another brief 
mention of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. And then we're going to land and spend the majority of our time in Hebrews chapter 7. Because it explains the direct and practical significance of Melchizedek. For understanding the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so in, as we approach it this way, I want us to consider first of all the encounter with Melchizedek. That will be in Genesis 14. And then I want us to see the expectation that is given in Psalm 110 for a greater significance. And then finally, I want us to consider the explanation of this fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 7. So let's look briefly at the encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Follow along as I read. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. In these verses, Abram is coming off of a significant military victory with a small number of people. He had gained a, a, a military victory over a king named Keterlamer, who was the leader of a coalition of nations from the east. This coalition had marched through the, the land of Canaan and had conquered uh, all the cities along the way, and in particular Sodom. And they had carried off essentially the whole city and all its possessions, and that included Abram's nephew, Lot. That's where this got personal for Abram. And the news of the defeat of Sodom rouses Abram into action, and he gathers 300-some people of his own household and he pursues this army coalition all the way through the land, all the way up to the north, and he conquers them entirely. And then he returns all the people and the possessions to their rightful place. And now, as Abram returns home, the king of Sodom, who had been defeated, comes up to, to meet Abram. But before he gets there, this mysterious man, Melchizedek, meets Abram and blesses him. Now, there are several significant points I want us to note about Melchizedek. There is more we could say on this, but for our time today, I want us to focus in on a few things. First of all, we need to notice that Melchizedek was the king of Salem in verse 18. That is, the king of a city called Salem, which was Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem, before the Israelites had moved in. Secondly, it's important to notice that he is a priest of God Most High. You see that in verse 18 as well. Also, notice that Melchizedek blessed Abram. It's significant that he's the one pronouncing the blessing on Abram, not the other way around. We see that in verse 19. And then notice fourthly also that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That is, in verse 20, uh, a sort of free will tithe or offering, and that is significant that it went from Abram to Melchizedek, not the other way around. 
All of these details will be used in future passages to demonstrate the significance of Melchizedek in understanding who Christ is, as we'll see. So that's it. That's what we see of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. It is a brief and mysterious encounter with this man who is the king of Jerusalem before Israel moves into the land. He is one who fears and worships the God of heaven, the one true God, before the people of God ever arrive. He serves as a priest of this God, even in a pagan land. And all of it before Israel is established. All of it before the law is given. All of it before the Jewish religious system is put into place. It's a brief encounter, and then he's gone, and the story moves on. But his name is going to appear in a few other places in Scripture, and that brings us now, secondly, to the next place that his name is mentioned, Psalm 110. Please turn there with me. And here, in Psalm 110, we are led beyond just a mere narrative of Melchizedek, we're, we're taken beyond just this mere encounter with the man, and we are now given a sort of expectation that there is something more to him, that there is a greater significance to the storyline of Scripture. Let's look at what Psalm 110 has to say about Melchizedek. We'll read verses 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, we have this imagery of one who is exalted as a conquering king, who serves as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is what we call a messianic psalm. That means that even though the psalmist, in this case David, writes in the context of his own circumstances, and his own prayers and meditations before the Lord, the Holy Spirit superintends his writing and directs it to serve as a sort of foreshadowing or a pre-explanation of who the Messiah is to be, of what the Savior will be like and what he will do. And Jesus himself refers back to Psalm 110. He talks about his own authority as that Messiah. And it ultimately points to the Father's promise to the Son that He will conquer His enemies, that He will rule on His throne as the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords, and that He will also serve as a divine priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, after the priestly order of Melchizedek. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110 describes the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God's promised servant who will save his people from their sins, who will serve as the supreme king and the great high priest. 
and it describes him in comparison to Melchizedek's priesthood. Now, why is that significant? Why mention Melchizedek here? Because to this point, the only priests the nation of Israel had ever known in their entire history were after the order of Levi and Aaron. The Levites were the tribe that God had selected to be the line of priests in Israel. And Aaron, Moses' brother, was ordained as the first priest in Israel, and all the other priests had descended from that order. But as we're going to see in a moment, the Levitical priesthood, or the Aaronic priesthood, was limited, and it was ultimately ineffective. Psalm 110 signals that there is a greater priesthood, a better priesthood, a more effective priesthood that God has in mind, something more than the spiritual shadows that the people had known to this point. That helps us to see how the, how the story of salvation throughout Scripture is progressing. It shows us who this Savior might be and what He is going to be like. And it teaches us what He will do and it provides for us, it prepares us for the arrival of this Savior in the New Testament. And so Melchizedek is what we call a biblical type. That is, someone or something used in the Old Testament to foreshadow Christ as a fulfillment in the New Testament. Melchizedek is a real person. He really lived. And Abram really met with him. And all those things in Genesis 14 really happened. But God in his sovereignty uses him in the record of Scripture to serve as a description or an illustration beforehand of what the Savior would be like, who would be a greater fulfillment of what Melchizedek illustrates. Now, the book of Genesis was written when the Jews were getting ready to enter into the promised land. Psalm 110 wasn't around yet, nor was the New Testament. The Israelites would have no way of recognizing that at this point. But over the centuries, through the progressive revelation of Scripture, Psalm 110 adds some detail to the, significant, to the significance of Melchizedek, and it prepares us for what the New Testament has to say about the fulfillment of what we see here in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us then to Hebrews chapter 7. If you'll turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 7. We've seen the encounter with Melchizedek, and we've seen the expectation that there's something significant about him. And now in Hebrews chapter 7, we find the explanation of all of it. We find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and its explanation about why it is significant. And my intention is not to do a full exposition of Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to have to be selective because you know, as well as I do, we'll be here till next Thursday if I try to do an exposition of the whole chapter together this morning. My goal is simply to highlight how Hebrews 7 leads us to see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the person and work of Melchizedek. And this is where things get really exciting. This is where this is not just a, a, a theological 
a catalog of events or a historical record of events. This is not a data dump, right? This is not a mere intellectual exercise. This has serious implications and significant value for us today concerning our salvation and our relationship with God. Hebrews mentions Melchizedek in chapters 5 and 6 in the same way he is mentioned in Psalm 110, specifically noting that Jesus is a greater high priest because his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Levi or Aaron. And then Hebrews chapter 7 explains what that means and why it matters. So follow along with me as we look at Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. That's the tithe. He, that is Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That's the city. Salem means peace. So he is king of righteousness and king of peace. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The point is, Melchizedek is greater because Abraham was paying tithes to him. Abraham, the one from whom would come the line of Levi who receives the tithes, they were paying tithes to Melchizedek. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible or eternal life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This chapter makes a very important and powerful point about Jesus Christ and about Melchizedek and about their priesthood. And then it builds on that point to make a powerful assertion about its application in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it builds on that to make a powerful explanation of why it matters in our lives today. First of all, the important point about, about Melchizedek. This chapter establishes that Melchizedek's priesthood is a greater priesthood or a superior priesthood to that of Levi, to that of Aaron, and to the entire Jewish religious system. And here I want us to see just a simple comparison of the two based on what we read in Hebrews chapter 7. For one thing, the priesthood of Levi and his descendants was tied inseparably to Israel as a nation. It was localized. It was a strictly Jewish institution. It was exclusive to one nation. But Melchizedek, on the other hand, though he is mentioned as the king of Salem, that wasn't Jewish territory. He is not a Jewish descendant. And his priesthood is not specifically tied to a tribe or a nation in terms of the historical record. He is a Gentile. He is a member of the nations outside of Israel. That's what the word Gentile means, nations. And that's really all we know of him, because that's how he's recorded in Scripture. His priesthood is not limited to one nation. It is a universal priesthood. And that is meant to reach all the world. And that prepares us for the Abrahamic covenant that we begin to see in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promises that through Abram's descendants, all the world will be blessed. Now, for another thing, another point of comparison, the priesthood of Levi and his descendants was separate from the royal line of kings. The priests came from Levi. 
The kings came from Judah. And though priests exercised a certain measure of authority and a certain measure of religious influence, even in the line of kings, they were still in large part subject to those kings. And they certainly were not kings themselves. The priestly office and the kingly office were distinctively separate in Israel. And so much so that those who dared to cross over, like King Saul did in 1 Samuel chapter 13, were dealt with severely by God. But not so with Melchizedek. In Melchizedek, we see both a priest and a king. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, makes a big deal about the translation of his name, king of righteousness, as we'll see in a moment. But though the main focus of this chapter is on his priesthood, it still highlights his kingship, his royal position. And so in Melchizedek, we find a concept that the Levitical priesthood could not offer. We find not just a priesthood, but a royal priesthood. A supreme priesthood. A divine priesthood. The kind of priesthood we are to expect from the one who would be the Messiah. The one who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the priesthood that cannot be found under the law. Or under the Old Testament Jewish religious system. Thirdly, another point of comparison is this. The priesthood of Levi and his descendants could offer no permanent righteousness before God. It could give no permanent peace with God, no permanent solution to man's greatest problem. He says that in chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Why is there a new priest needed? Because the Levitical priesthood could not solve the problem. It wasn't meant to. The Levitical priesthood required a constant sacrifice. The priest had to go in and make atonement for his own sins, and then daily had to make atonement for the sins of everybody else in the nation as well. It was constant. It was ongoing. It was nonstop. Any sin or any lapse in religious observance demanded another sacrifice, demanded another offering, because the, the system could not give a permanent fix. But Melchizedek? Well, he's called a king and a priest of righteousness and peace. The very thing that the Levitical system could not provide. And look at chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse, uh, the second part of, chapter, of verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of, of, of peace. And the author isn't just making a play on words here. He is pointing out something important about Melchizedek that foreshadows the kind of thing, the kind of royal priest that the Messiah would be. Scripture reveals he is the royal priest who will accomplish and who will be identified by righteousness and peace. The righteousness of God and bringing men peace with God. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, the great high priest will be able to bring men into permanent peace with God, bringing them the perfect righteousness of God. 
Fourthly, there's another crucial comparison here. The priesthood of Levi was hereditary. It wasn't based on qualifications. It was based on family line. It was tied to one's genealogical heritage. It was by law and not by character. Anyone who did not have a pure Levitical lineage was disqualified from being priest. And the qualification was strictly hereditary. Personal qualifications were secondary, if necessary at all. Not all of the priests in Israel were godly men. Nor even a good example. And so even the Levitical priesthood was tainted by sin. But Melchizedek, his qualifications were of a different sort. We're not given his lineage. We're not given his legal qualifications. We're told about his character and his name. We're told about the personal qualifications. Hebrews 7.3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, don't misunderstand that. That's not saying that he didn't have an earthly father or mother or that he was never born or didn't die. Now, he was a normal man just like everybody else. He was a real person. He was a sinner. He had a real family. He lived a real life. But in terms of the historical record, his priesthood is not tied to genealogy. It's not tied to historical lineage. There is no indication of his family credentials or bloodline. And in terms of the literary record, he is an eternal figure who appeared for a moment and then was gone, but was never born and never died. That's the literary record. And the implication is that in a literary sense, he has no beginning and no end. Therefore, his qualifications are based solely on his divinely appointed character, which we've already seen, righteousness and peace. And in the same way, the Messiah's credentials are not about earthly heritage, but about his divine heritage and his divine character. In Hebrews 7, verses 15 and 16, make much of this in explaining the superiority of a priest whose priesthood is not based on the law or the earthly lineage, but on the power of an eternal or indestructible life. And that brings us to a fifth comparison here. The priesthood of Levi was temporary and limited. A priest began limited work of priesthood around the age of 25, and then he grew into greater involvement. And by the time he turned 50, that was it. He retired, he was done. And then there would be a change. There would be a new priest. Constant change, constant renewal, constant resetting, never-ending process. But not so with Melchizedek. Because his lack of recorded beginning and end is used to highlight the eternal nature of the Messiah, who is the superior priest. In Hebrews 7, verses 17 and 21, both quote Psalm 110 and mention that this priest is a priest forever. You realize forever doesn't mean starting at one point and never ending. It means never beginning either. He always has been. So here's a summary of it all. The writer to the Hebrews is making a point that the Levitical priesthood, the earthly religious system, is inferior because it is severely limited in every way. 
It is tied to one nation. It is subject to earthly authority. It is ineffective in accomplishing true righteousness and peace, and it is temporary. Therefore, true salvation cannot be found in the law alone nor can it be found in the outward religious rituals and observances even of the nation of Israel because it is all incomplete. It is all limited. It is all temporary. It is not meant to be the fulfillment. It is meant only to point forward to the ultimate fulfillment. And so the author of Hebrews looks to Melchizedek as an illustration of what that true and ultimate fulfillment is looks like. And that brings us to the second main point of Hebrews chapter 7 here. Because Melchizedek's priesthood is a greater priesthood, a superior priesthood, because of that, secondly, Jesus is the greater priest. He is the superior priest because he is the fulfillment of what Melchizedek foreshadows. He is the object. He is the focus of the illustration. And the author comes right out and says it in Hebrews 7, 22 through 24. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many, nonstop, endless, because they were prevented from death, by death, from continuing in office. Right, we needed a lot of priests because they kept dying. Verse 24, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Melchizedek is the illustration. The things that have been highlighted in this chapter about him come to their full expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is presented here as the ultimate, the perfect, the superior, the great high priest. His priesthood is a universal priesthood, reaching to all the nations. His qualifications are divine qualifications because he is God. His ministry is a ministry of accomplishment, not potential. Because he has once for all secured the righteousness of his people and secured their peace with God. His ministry is an ongoing ministry that is marked by never-ending righteousness and peace. And that brings us to the culmination of it all. Why it matters. Why go on and on and on about Jesus as a priest? I don't even know what a priest is. But we're going to talk about that in a moment. Why all of this talk about a superior priesthood? Because it tells us what kind of Savior we need and what kind of salvation we have. The conclusion of this whole matter is stated in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, that's the therefore, because of all this that we have covered so far, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, that is, save forever, permanently, those who draw near to God through him. Since, because, he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. In other words, because of all of this, because all of this is true about Jesus, he is the only effective Savior. But not only that, 
because all of this is true, he is all the Savior any of us ever need. And this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. This is where all this talk about Jesus as the great high priest becomes incredibly good news for us. Here's why this matters. Let's start with the bad news. First, man's greatest problem is separation from God. You heard me right. Man's greatest problem is not poverty. Man's greatest problem is not social unrest. It is not earthly injustice. It is not sickness. It is not bad politics. Man's greatest problem is separation from God. Every one of us. Genesis has made this clear from the beginning, and all Scripture testifies. Follow this train of thought here. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If you have clean hands, raise them. Nobody? Uh-oh. Aren't we in trouble? Yes, we are. Because the Apostle Paul tells us, quoting the Old Testament in Romans 3, verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, that there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. The point about sin this morning, it's not just missing the mark. We're not even aiming at the target. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here's the problem. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 tells us very clearly, our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 76, verse 7, cries out, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Who? Not you. Not me. We're in trouble, aren't we? Man was created for intimate fellowship with God in perfect creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But our sin, Genesis 3, has caused a breach or a separation, a broken relationship with God. And because of our sin, we are not naturally at peace with God. We are separated from Him. We are in a position of rebellion against Him and hostility against Him. And we are justly under His judgment. And furthermore, there is nothing any of us can do about it. There is nothing any human endeavor can do to fix this greatest problem. And Genesis 4 through 11 tell us that. And the rest of Scripture shows us no matter how hard we try, we only make it worse. And so the reality hits us. We desperately need someone to step in on our behalf. Someone who is not like us. Someone who is better, who is greater, and who is superior. Who is the one who can stand in the midst of the wrath of God? It is the great high priest. What is a priest? Some of you come from backgrounds where you are familiar with the concept of a priest. What is a priest? He is a mediator who stands between God and men, who is able and who is authorized to bring us to God and make peace between us. That is our greatest need. And only Jesus is available. Only Jesus is able. Only Jesus is authorized and effective to do that. Man's greatest problem 
is separation from God, but that brings us to the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus reconciles us to God. He is the great high priest. He is the only high priest. Our greatest problem is separation from God. Jesus, who is foreshadowed in Genesis 14, who is prophesied in Psalm 110, and who is introduced in Hebrews 7, addresses this very problem, and he brings us to God and makes peace. He is the solution to our greatest problem. And Hebrews 7.25 says, This Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That is, he is able to save fully and completely and permanently and forever. He is able to give a salvation that no one else in this world ever could and that no one can take away. And this is because he is the eternal God who is the very definition of righteousness and peace. And as eternal God, he was born into this world and he lived as a man in this world, never sinning, always about his father's business. And by his perfect life, he served as a contrast to Adam and, in his, and, and Adam's sin. And he accomplished righteousness and holiness and perfection, a perfect life on our behalf, in our place. And then he was crucified. And scripture makes clear that it was the Father who brought that about, that he's the one who put Christ on the cross. And he did it to pour out his divine wrath on him, on Jesus, who in that moment was bearing our sin before the Father and was receiving the punishment that we deserved. Why? Because only God could bear that kind of judgment and then come to tell about it. And three days later, after he died on that cross, he rose again from the grave, sealing his victory over sin and death, completing the work of salvation forever. Something no one had been able to do to that point. And then he ascended back to the presence of the Father, where Hebrews 1 tells us he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why does a priest sit down? Because the work is finished. Finally. And now Hebrews 7 tells us he always and forever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Therefore, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So why does this mean? In light of this glorious news, what do we do? In light of the fact that there is an eternal and perfect Savior who has, by His own blood, fulfilled the law for us and once and for all has accomplished righteousness and true holiness for us and has forever brought us peace with God. Because of that, then since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
And furthermore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you have never come to a point of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never cried out to Him for mercy and forgiveness for your sins, and if you have never submitted to Him as your sovereign Lord, then this invitation is for you to look to Him. Look unto Jesus, who is able to save forever all who draw near. Now is the time. Today is the day. Why would you wait You will never find righteousness or peace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, you will will only find eternal judgment under God's holy and just wrath. But the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation for you if you will just look to Him and live. And so because of this great news of righteousness, of peace, of eternal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. We lift our voices in praise and we pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you, Christian, may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ.